had someone come in and say, how do you have time to do this? Because you know, I, we have three kids, we have a farm, but this is a break for me. This is something I look forward to because when I leave, I feel refreshed and restored and ready to get back to my family and my kids and my goats. <laughs> we wanted our grandchildren to come to church and decided that um, if we wanted them to come to church, that we needed to be involved also. Yeah. And we, we really enjoy just being with kids. I've always loved electronics and things of that nature, so this gives me an opportunity to work with people that are willing to teach me what they do, teach their trade. On top of you know my stressful job, I can come here and be stress-free and work around a great group of people that, you know, no judgment, nothing. We just have a good time. We work together, put you know, forward a great service for everybody to enjoy. And um, you know, for however long I'm here, you know, helping out, uh, I don't have those worries of the other job. You know, volunteering just makes you feel a part of it. If we weren't volunteering and just going to one of the services. Uh, I don't think we'd meet near the number of people that we know now. When you first start coming to a church like this, it's it's big, which is awesome. There's so many people, but if you're not connected in somehow, then it just stays big rather than getting small and, and more familiar. Seeing someone you know get so excited about something that they like to do is really fun and interesting to see them. You know, their eyes just light up when they love doing something. And seeing my dad love doing something kind of started to inspire me to do what I loved. At my age and, and with my disability, um, can I be used? Um, I still go through all of that, but um, when you serve, you, you forget it. God gives you what you need. Um, I can always see better and hear better when I'm serving. Um, and those doubts just vanish in the act of serving. Well, when I first started volunteering, I thought that the place that I should be as a mom was in the children's area. And so I just did that thinking that's what I'm supposed to do. And then come to find out that's not my strength and it became more of a chore and something that I didn't look forward to at all, which is terrible to admit as a mother, but it was. And so I transferred to the coffee shop and I love it. I look forward to doing this and I remember a sermon from pastor where he basically said you know serving doesn't have to be this super uncomfortable thing that you're like this martyr going out to serve people it can be something you enjoy and this is what I enjoy Hey, good morning, church. Good to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel. I'm Greg Paris. We're so thrilled you're here with us this morning. Glad you're here. Uh, as you're discerning now, we're talking about volunteering and serving in the life of the church this weekend. And we have a, a three-pronged mission statement here at Union Chapel. It's all about Jesus. We want to know Jesus. We want to grow in our relationship with Jesus. We want to go telling others about him. And those three things, know, grow, and go. And there are three specific things that, 
that our goal is to get everyone engaged in doing three things associated with those three statements of our mission. The first thing that we want everyone to do is to participate on a regular basis on our, in our worship services. We think it's the best way to know God, to come to our services and, and participate and benefit from that. The, the serving, the, the uh, knowing part, the growing in our relationship with God is about small groups. You heard Kate on the video talking about the church getting smaller. And this is very important in a growing larger church that people find smaller face-to-face -face groups to get the kind of support they need. And so we encourage everyone to be in a small group, a fellowship circle of some sort. If you're not in one, we encourage you to get in one. And the third piece is the going, the serving part, making Jesus known to others. And so we have a goal to get everyone serving in some capacity in the life of the church. So come to service on a regular basis, that's knowing. Get in a small group, fellowship circle, that's growing. And serve in some capacity, and that's going. And so today we want to emphasize this piece of going. I've chosen as our text today from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25. This is Jesus telling a very important story about using what God gives you. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We'll begin at verse 14. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Matthew 25. And Jesus said again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. That's an interesting phrase, according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. How many of you are already discerning this isn't going to end well for this guy? You know, you're just picking up on that. After a long time, the master of these servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good, faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the banker so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him, give it to the one who has ten bags, for whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth. May God enlighten us and instruct us through his word today. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I want to talk about living with purpose today. 
And I want to start by just suggesting that if you imagine the most impoverished part of our own city or the most impoverished section of any city in the United States, I want to suggest to you that it is not an economic problem. Not an economic problem. It's a purpose problem. Think about that. People who get up without purpose will become angry, they'll become frustrated, they'll become disillusioned, and sometimes they become violent. When you come to believe your life is meaningless and without value, you will dissolve into dysfunction and destructive patterns. Not primarily, then, is it about economics. It's not about education. It's not about culture. It's not about the wrong side of town. It's about purpose. It's about purpose. Look at this uh, quote from Dr. Miles Monroe. He said, where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Where purpose is not known, abuse is inevitable. Um, you show me anyone who's abusing anything and I will conclude they don't know the purpose of it. For example, a man who abuses a woman doesn't know the value and purpose of a woman. A woman who abuses a man does not know the value and purpose of a man. People who will abuse marriage do not know the value, the meaning, the purpose of marriage. If I grab one of these microphones off a of stand back here and I start driving nails with it, you will immediately conclude I don't know the purpose of a microphone. So what I'm doing with the microphone is I am abusing it. Abnormal use, abuse. People who abuse their own lives do not know the value and the meaning and the purpose of their lives. For example, if you show me someone who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, I will show you someone who does not know the purpose in life. Breaking addiction, of course, usually is approached with psychotherapies and support therapies, medical therapies, and all these have their good place. But my theory is that if you help someone get a God-given purpose for their lives, they'll set the drugs down by themselves. Stop and think. So when you don't know the purpose of your life, you will abuse your life. God wants you to have purpose, and in that purpose to bring value to the life of others. Not only value to your own life, but value to the life of others as well. Now, Pastor Rick Warren, most of you are familiar with this now, uh, several years ago wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Life. This uh, book has sold over 30 million copies around the world, 86 languages. It's been translated. Uh, I put those five purposes that outline the book for you in your, in your bulletin today. Uh, Pastor Warren says you're planned for God's pleasure. You were formed for God's family. You were created to become like Christ. You were shaped for serving God and you were made for a mission. So these five things, if, if you wonder what your purpose is in general, this helps you with an outline of, of your general purpose in life, to worship God, to fellowship with God's people, to grow in your re relationship with Christ as a disciple, to serve God in the context of his, of his church through ministry, and to see the world as a place where you can engage in mission. These five purposes are general. Uh, Pastor Warren came back uh, years later and wrote two additional chapters to the book, The Purpose Driven Life, and these two chapters were the two biggest reasons he believes why Christians don't pursue a purpose-driven life. And those two reasons are envy and people-pleasing. Jealousy 
and trying to please everybody around you will keep you from your purpose. This is another sermon, right? Now let me just give you one irrefutable truth of life. Not all men are created equal. Now before you push back on that, let me explain. Of course we believe that all people are created equal in value and in worth in the eyes of God. We should all be equally treated. We should all have equal rights. We should all be given equal opportunity. We all should... We should all uh, apply to that and prescribe ourselves to that ideal. Everyone has equal value, but not everyone is equal. Some are physically superior. Some are mentally superior. Some are naturally superior to others. For example, uh, uh, some years ago when Tiger Woods was at the pinnacle of his golf career, uh, and you thought yourself to be one of the greatest golfers in the world and you happened to be playing at the time, uh, you weren't. You weren't the best. He was the best. And everybody else was a distant second and third and fourth. You know, you got to go way to the back of the room because he's the best. You're not. And so we're not equal. We're different. Uh, when Albert Einstein was at the pinnacle of his mental prowess and, and uncovering the theory of relativity, there were other physicists in the world, and some of them may be notable, but there was only one Einstein. <laughs> And so he was the best. He was the smartest. He, he's going around the world, and so everybody else is in second place. No, one, no one's equal to that. If you think of yourself as a, as a great basketball player, for example, in the last 10 years or so, and you think, well, I'm world class. I, you know, I've got all these skills. I've got all this ability. I, I, I must be up there. Well, actually, no, because Le, LeBron James is alive right now, and he's at the pinnacle. And he is actually stronger, he's faster, he's quicker, he's got more of all the stuff that you need. He's the best. And everybody else goes to the back of the room compared to him. We're not equal. And all of us, if we live long enough, run into people in our categories of expertise and we realize that person, <laughs> I'm not equal to them. They're superior to me. And you realize that this is absolutely true. So therefore, watch it now. You have to be happy with what you have and learn how to work what you have. You have to work with what you have. We live in a generation that tells us if you don't have what someone else has, then you're not significant or you're not important. If you're not the best, then you're not really worth anything. That is so wrong. The Bible actually says that comparing yourselves amongst yourselves is an unwise thing to do. Uh, it's not wise for me, it's not wise for you, it's not wise for anyone. I, I'm pretty careful about this personally. I don't compare myself to, like to other pastors because I don't have the stuff they have, the, the ability they have, the capacity they have, the gifts they have. I don't compare myself to anyone else, period, because it's not wise. I, wise. I just I don't pause and go, I wish I had his wife, or I wish I had his house, or I wish I had his car, I wish I had his income. I don't do that. No, no, I don't compare, compare myself to others. In fact, the best way to go through life is in relationship with your potential. Stop and listen to this. I want to become the best person, the best husband, the best father, the best grandfather, the best pastor that I can be, the best friend that I can be. Look at this statement on the screen. See if it resonates with you. Nobility is not defined by how you compare with others. Nobility is defined by how you are becoming better than your former self. 
There you go. There it is. If I'm focused on you, I may go beyond you, but I may be wasting my potential. So rather we should evaluate how we are doing based on the potential that God has put within us, that God has put inside of us. There are all kinds of different levels. For example, each one's given a measure of faith. Well, some people are believing God today for supper. You know, I just hope there's food for dinner tonight. Some other people may be trusting God for a new job. It's a bigger level of faith. So there, there may be someone in the room who's actually trusting God to close a seven-figure deal in the next week or two. That's a bigger faith. So, so, so there are different measures. There are different capacities. Our story today with the, with the guy who hands off these bags of gold, he gives it to people according to their ability. And so everyone has a different level of capacity. There are different measures of grace. For example, some of you have lived in a marriage that most people could have never survived. But you have grace for it. You've done it. We have families in our church who are raising special children. Some of them are special needs. Some of them are handicapped in some way. Some of them are drug exposed. And and there's this whole litany of things. And yet you're raising these children. I, I look at folks like that and I go, I don't think I could do that. But they have grace for it. They have different capacity for it. Yeah. So we have different measures of faith, different measures of grace, different measures of gifts. So Jesus told this parable. He gave one five, another two, and to another one. So here's the challenge. You must not look at your measure of stuff and then come to believe that you don't have enough of anything to do anything with it. You've got to, you've got to work with what you have. And that leads me to the second point. That is my point. It's on your outline. You might want to write this down. You have to work with what you have. Whatever capacity God has given you, you need to work with that. Remember, David didn't have much. He was a small shepherd boy, and all he had was this little leather sling and a few stones, but he learned how to work it. And he killed a lion with that thing, and then he killed a bear with that thing, and then one day he killed a Goliath with that sling. And it took him all the way to the palace in Jerusalem as the king of Israel because he took what he had and he began to work it. So you have to work with what you have. If you have a brain, then you need to work it. If you have a handsome face, then you need to work it. If all you have is a little intercessory prayer gift, then work it. If you have the capacity to serve, then work it. If you have a little musical ability or administrative ability or hospitality or mercy or helps, all of these gifts, you have to learn to work it. I don't know about you, but it just seems to me that there's, there's darkness that's coming over the United States, maybe even the world. It just seems dark. Maybe you feel it. Maybe you notice it. It's just like darkness covers the people. It's like, a, like clouds have, have come in. And, and it's an interesting time, a difficult time. I want to show you a verse of Scripture that I think is a symptom of some of this uh, confusion in our culture right now. It's Ecclesiastes 10.18. Look at it on the screen. It says, Because of laziness, the building decays. Through idleness of hands, the house leaks. I think one of the, one of the solutions to some of the problems in our cult- culture is to break laziness off of us. Laziness, I think, in America goes across generational lines. It goes across ethnic lines, racial lines, cultural lines. I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, that, 
the lazy actually despise the diligent. Have you noticed? I want what you have, but I don't want to have to work like you did to obtain it. Years ago, Beth and I were assigned, appointed by our bishop in the United Methodist Church to a little cornfield church here in northern Delaware County. And there were, you know, 50, 60 people in this little church, and there weren't any people anywhere. It was just in a cornfield. Now, we could have paused and looked at that and said, you know, there's really not a lot of potential here. There's not a lot of opportunity here. And this just seems like a, a kind of a first stop, and you want to move ahead quickly. And we'll just uh, maybe tread water here for a little while and try to keep people happy for a couple of years. And then maybe the bishop will assign us to a bigger place where there's more people and more opportunity. Now, if we had assumed that kind of attitude, let me ask you the question, what would we have missed? What if our attitude was with a small beginning like that, a very humble beginning, what, the limitations that would have occurred in our attitude or vision or passion or potential, we would have missed an amazing thing. There, there are over 30,000 United Methodist churches in North America. You heard that right. Over 30,000 of us. At one time, the Methodist movement in, the, in North America was a phenomenon. It was an amazing thing. It's not so great anymore. But at one time, many churches were started, and we have over 30,000 that still remain in the United States. Union Chapel, by worship attendance, is in the top 100 of those 30,000-plus Methodist churches. Now, that's a remarkable thing, isn't it? That's an amazing thing. And, and it's a result of Beth and I not despising small beginnings, but pausing to say, look, what do we have in front of us? What are the opportunities that are here? And let's just build on that. Let's work with what we have. This is what we've been given, let's work it. This is where we're starting, let's work it. Only got one bag, one talent, but let's work it. Let's not bury it in the backyard, let's use it. Let's get busy. Remember Moses, uh, Moses spent his first 40 years in the palaces of Egypt as a prince. But the next 40 years, he spent in the desert of Midian uh, shepherding sheep. I mean, the only thing he had to look out for was to, not to step in it. And so he's just there for 40 years, and now he's 80 years old. And you know this story. He, he, he walks up on this bush that is now aflame, but it's not burning. It's not consumed. And, and God speaks out of this bush. He says to Moses, I want you to be my deliverer of my people out of Egyptian bondage. He's talking to an 80-year-old man. And Moses pushes back. Moses says, look, I'm too old for this kind of job. I don't, I don't have any contacts. I don't have a network. I've been tending sheep for 40 years. Plus, I don't talk plain. I stutter. And, and in a pithy moment of clarity and insight, Moses asked the Lord in that setting, he said, what, what am I going to say to Pharaoh in Egypt? Even if I get there in front of him, what am I supposed to say? Look, I saw this bush that was burning, and God spoke to me, and God told me to tell you, let my people go. Moses goes, they're not going to listen to me. They're not going to respond to that. They're going to think I'm a kook. This isn't going to work. This is too small. This is too obscure. This is too irrelevant. Now, he said, if... Now, if you gave me some backup, you know, if you sent a fireball on Cairo, now that'll get somebody's attention. 
or you give me some artillery and some tanks, you know, some shock and awe, you, you promised me some shock and awe, now we'll get somewhere. But a story like this? And so Moses asked the question. In response to Moses' concerns, this is what, Mo, this is what God says to Moses. He asks him a question. He said, what's that in your hand? What's that in your hand? Moses said, a stick. He had a shepherd's staff with him. You know, he can spiritualize that and, you know, it's the rod of authority, blah, 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 whatever. But essentially, it was a stick. He had a stick in his hand. He had a stick in his hand. When you think about it, there are only two big questions that God will ask all of us in life. Just two. These two big questions. The first big question that God will ask all of us over the course of our life is this. What have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? What have you done? Because as it turns out, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He is the sovereign over the universe that he becomes the line of demarcation that will determine all of our eternal destinies. What have you done with my son, Jesus Christ? The most important question that human beings are ever asked. And the second question that we are asked by God is a simple question, which is, what is in your hand? What is in your hand? God never asked Moses, where are you headed? He didn't ask, what are you going to be the leader of? He didn't ask, what historic influence is going to come through your life? What great legacy of faith is going to accommodate your experience in the, in the world. He only asked, what is in your hand? In other words, what is in your hand right now, in this moment? In other words, don't, don't tell God all the great things you're going to do in the by and by. Don't tell God that, you know, in the future, I'm going to do some great things for you. Or, you know, I'm going to be the next Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates. Don't bother with that. Maybe if, if, you, if you're... If, if you're a student right now and education is in your hands, then just pass algebra. Just become diligent. Don't imagine some great thing that you're going to do someday. Just faithfully apply in a diligent way what is currently in your hand. If you're a minimum wage laborer, show up early. Stay late. Make your employer wonder how they can function without you. And I promise you, sooner or later, someone will notice you. What is in your hand? If you're a Christian person and you have a sense that God wants to use you and that there's opportunity for you and you have gifts and some level of capacity, then ask the question, how can I invest my life right now in meaningful ways? One of the great truths of the Christian faith is that God uses common things to accomplish uncommon goals. He's always used weak things and infirm things to make a difference in the world. So don't, don't tell God what you haven't got or what you can't do. You know, Moses said, I, I'm old, I can't talk very well, I'm afraid, I don't want to go to Egypt, I don't have any influence, I don't have an army, can't you find somebody else? And God said, what's in your hand? It's a very powerful, very powerful thing. Now that leads me to the third thing on your outline, you want to write this down. In the pursuit of God's purpose for your life and meaningful service, you want to look for wise friends. Look for wise friends. Look on the screen with me at Proverbs 13, 20. It says, he who runs with the wise shall be wise, but he who makes the companion of fools shall be destroyed. 
One of the best things you can do is to start hanging with people who are pursuing their God-given purpose. You want to follow God's purpose for your life? Find people who are following God's purpose for their life and hang out with them. Great people you'll discover sit around, purposeful people will sit around talking about great ideas and the pursuit of successful things. People who are living on purpose will actually talk about purposeful things and it will inspire you. So you want to hang out with them. Weak people hang together and talk about how angry they are at people who are successful. This is happening a lot in our culture right now. This is weakness. So look for wise friends. Look for wise friends. And, and give yourself in those meaningful relationships. Let me talk to you about the most important relationship you can develop, and that's with the Lord himself. Look at John 15. I want to look at the first few verses there. One and two, I put it on the screen. I'm the true vine, Jesus said. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes. So if you don't bear fruit, you're taken away. If you do bear fruit, you get pruned so that you can bear more fruit. What is Jesus saying? He's saying work it or waste it. Use it or lose it. Because you're pruned if you do and you're pruned if you don't. Either way, you're getting pruned. Next verses, three, and three to five, you're already clean because the word which I've spoken to you abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit for without me you can do nothing. So here's an invitation to wise relationships for, starting with Jesus himself who is the vine, we're the branches. And the way to be fruitful is to stay connected to him, verses six to eight. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. They gather them, throw them into the fire, they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. That's a powerful promise right there, isn't it? Very powerful. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. Jesus called his followers disciples. He had the 12 disciples that hung out with him. The root word of disciples is discipline. So Jesus picked 12 average guys, just average folks, different capacities, different intellects, different natural abilities, 12 average guys, kind of just like us. And he disciplined them. He called them disciples. Let me remind you, he never called them holy. These holy men, he didn't say that. He didn't say they were anointed. He didn't call them powerful. He called them disciples. Now think about this. They were disciplined by Jesus, and then after Jesus left, they disciplined their own lives by realizing what was in their hand and making use of the capacity that God had given them. And without the benefits of social media, without a powerful internet, without satellite technology, none of this communication technology, these 12 average guys using what was in their hands evangelized the known world. You and I are all here today because 12 average guys said, I'll use whatever's in my hand in a God-honoring way to serve the people around me and we'll see what God might do with it. And amazing, miraculous things have happened as a result. So learn the lesson, hear it, and understand it. Moses eventually pounded that stick on the ground in Egypt, 
and the dust became lice. He threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And when the Egyptian magicians matched it, Moses' serpent ate their serpents. He struck the waters of the Nile with that stick and it turned to blood. He stretched that stick over the Red Sea and the waters parted. When he withdrew that stick, the mighty armies of the Egyptians drowned. What is in your hand? Maybe something God can use in a powerful way. The stick is in your hand, and it's yours to hold or withhold. It is there to use or to waste. It is also used there to, to consecrate to God. It is in your hand to lay at the feet of Jesus, because God will not snatch it out of your hands. Let me tell you about a pastor that I learned about. His name is Nathan. His nickname was Nat. And Nat has been a very successful pastor in a local church for many years. God has used him very powerfully. And Nat has cerebral palsy. It's a relatively mild case, but it still leaves him dragging his right leg. Uh, he has uncoordinated hands, and, and his speech is a bit halted. And Nat can tell you the exact moment that life completely turned around for him. Let me tell you the story. He was a boy of about seven or eight years old, and his pastor father had driven his family home in a rainstorm. And his father only had a key to the back door of their house, and not wanting his wife to get wet moving from the car to the back of the house, he gave the key to Nat and asked him to go around, unlock the door, then come to the front door and unlock it so they'd have a shorter distance to go into the house. So Nat, you know, drags his little seven-year-old leg, right leg back there and his halting hands, and he gets, he gets the door there and he's trying to get the, the key into the lock. And the rain's sleeting down and, and it's dark and he can't get it. He dropped the key. He got all frustrated. He kept trying and he couldn't get it. And so he finally walked back out to the car where his dad cracked the window down like this and Nat, now totally drenched, Nat looked at his dad and he said, Dad, I can't. To which his dad got out of the car, standing in the rain, bent down, nose to nose with little Nat, and he said, don't you ever say that to me again. I don't want to ever hear you say you can't. Because if you say you can't, then you can't, but you can. And so you're going to march your little behind back around the back of the house and you're going to unlock that door and you're going to come and let us in. And don't give me any more I can'ts. Nat recalled the story. He said he was in tears and he went back to the back door and he was feeling sorry for himself. And my dad, my dad doesn't understand me. My dad doesn't know how difficult it is with this disability. My dad doesn't love me. He doesn't care. So through his tears, he's back there and he's trying to get this key in the lock. And he wrestled with it and struggled with it. And finally, the key went in the lock. And when he unlocked that door and he turned the doorknob on that back door, this was the moment that changed his life. He said he heard the voice of God. And this is what God said to Nat. I will use your crippled body to open doors for many. How strong is that? 
How strong is that? And your excuse was? Your rationalization was? Your problem is? Let me just be really straightforward with you. If you've been here a while, you know that I'm inclined to do this on occasion. If you're new, you know, just take deep breaths, it'll be fine. <laughs> the question is, what is in your hand? Let me just say that the whiny, overfed, overindulged, selfish, privileged, entitled, over-equipped, under-challenged people of the Western world keep waiting and waiting for some burning bush to fall on Egypt while God is waiting to use the stick that is in your hand. God is waiting for this generation to stop whining and get busy. Now, I know some of you have difficult stories. I get it. You were disadvantaged, wrong side of town, mistreated, misapplied, betrayed. Listen to me. We are all sympathetic, and we understand there's been damage done. What happened to you was unfair, it was wrong, and it's unfortunate. But it still begs the question, what is in your hand? Now let me make this next statement with some hyperbole. I admit this is hyped up a bit, but I'm doing it to help you and give you perspective on reality. Are you ready? For those of you who have legitimate excuses you feel, you've been victimized in life, you've been disadvantaged in life, and you, and you feel like you just don't have anything that God can use, listen to me. Nobody cares about your excuses. Not really. People, people act like they care. They try to care. They try to be sympathetic with you. They try, to, they try to be compassionate toward you and your pain. They really do. But ultimately, at the end of the day, nobody cares. Nobody cares. And ultimately, God doesn't care. Because God still asks the question, what is it in your hand? To the degree that you remain introspective, thinking that you no longer have value and worth and usefulness in the hands of God in service to others, because of, some, of your story, your narrative, and what's happened to you, to the degree that you remain internally focused is the degree that you will lose your sense of purpose, and therefore begin to abuse your life. And dysfunction and destruction is sure to follow. The degree to which, though, that you turn yourself outward, away from your own issues, away from your own pain, away from your own agenda, your own baggage, and you begin to focus on the opportunities that God gives you even through your suffering to meaningfully help other people is the degree to which you're going to find meaning and significance and fulfillment and purpose and life. It is in direct proportion. The happiest people in the world are people who serve other people. The, 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 most, the, 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 the most gratified people, the most fulfilled people in the world are people who have learned to open their hands in meaningful service to others. This is, listen, this, this may be hidden from you up to this moment. It is not a mystery to God nor his word and the principles that are taught therein. God knows that the best way to receive what you need in your life is to give your life away in meaningful care to others. So God says, take what is in your hand and use it. 
consecrate it to God. Use it joyfully. Use it fruitfully. Use it faithfully. You can waste your life waiting for God to put a golden scepter in your hand, or you can use the stick you've got and see what God might do. Amen? Did you hear it? Receive it now in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you today for a generation of people who might even become known as radicals. For a church full of people willing and available to serve and to give and to go and to volunteer and to minister with what you have given them in the here and now. And so we rejoice in the opportunity to serve. We rejoice in a a field of opportunity before us. So give us courage, give us conviction, faith to embrace the opportunities that is within reach of our hands. And give us delight in serving. Give us joy in the giving and the going and the serving. Now, friend, one more time, one more time, hear the question. What is in your hand? Your strengths, your weaknesses, your experiences, your talents, your time, your treasure. I wonder how many of you would be bold enough, courageous enough to pray these words. I'll say them for you. Lord, I consecrate my life to you. I give you my youth. I give you my old age. I give you everything in my hand. In Jesus' name. And all the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?